through a lady who always agreed. Hey, you want to meet him? A holiday? Nine was just as much better than getting away. Or staying in. Staycation, right? Some people have staycations. That's good too. The point is you get to plan it, you get to look forward to it, you get to unplug, unwind, and enjoy yourself. This is like me time. This is my time, our time, as you're saying. Making memories, seeing new things you've never seen, or seeing that thing that you love again after a long time. We were out of town last weekend, Hannah and Amanda and myself. We were in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, this was a shout out this time, if you've been in the town there. Um, we had a great time. And as is my custom so many times, I really look forward to the trip. I'm like, you know, it's like two weeks to the trip, a week to the trip, three days to the trip. And of course, it revolves around Hannah's birthday, too, which made it a little easier to track down. But that, that's kind of my common thing planning, preparing with anticipation and maybe a little bit of anxiety. Of and then it came time to leave. And then we get all the stuff that we plan to do and more. We have a blast. And then something happens that always happens with vacations. They end. They throw off. And it's like, if I'm not, we came back on a Monday, and if I'm not careful, I ruined Sunday by dreading Monday. We need to get packed this evening, and we need to be prepared for this. Check out my lesson, and we need to go on the road. You know, it's Sunday morning. And I hate the end of vacation. I hate it. And that's just how I am. I, I've got to, like, if I've got apps that I was using, like for a hotel or a rental car or something, I've got to delete them before I get back, because I don't want to see them once I get back, because it makes me sad. And so I live through every hour that night. I'm with the gas buddy after you. And that's like Tuesday when I'm back at work. We'll make up. You know, you've got things to do. And that's just kind of how I am. I hate the end of the trip. Now, I surely did enjoy getting back and seeing my other three kids and being back at my house and sleeping in my bed. I like all that stuff. But it makes me sad to see something so anticipated, something so exciting come to an end. Makes me sad. Now, I know that makes me a sissy. I think you can kind of see where I'm going with this, right? And here we are. The last message from Romans. This is it. Okay, so I'm going to get back. Let's get out of here. I'm hungry. <laughs> it's our last message from the book of Romans, and it's been 25 months. Think about that. So much has happened in 25 months. Two years and a month. People have come and gone. Time has passed. I've gained weight. Um, we've shrunk and we've grown. We've changed buildings. I've grown some weight. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> 25 months. But most importantly, I think, we've been challenged and changed by some of the most impressive and powerful truths anywhere in the Bible. And I'm sad that it's coming to me. I'm also crazy encouraged by where we are now and where we are going. And while the end of the trip is usually depressing to me, in this case, it's really the beginning of something new and beautiful for us. Because where we end in this passage is at the very center, the very core of what it means to be a Christian. And where we end today is God himself. 
Every Romans 16, verses 25 through 27, you would stand as we read these three verses. Stand out of reverence, understanding that these are the very words of God. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. God, we celebrate the power of your word. We celebrate the life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and glorification of Jesus. We celebrate the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives. And Father God, we celebrate you adopting us into your family, making us joint heirs with Christ, and justifying us by faith in the finished work of Christ. Now as we look at this final passage in the book of Romans, God, would you help us to see it again? fresh and anew, and may the power of who you are wash over us and change our lives. Holy Spirit, we ask you to teach us and instruct us in Jesus' name. You may be So we're looking at a doxology, a benediction, um, and there are, I was going to like read a sampling doxologies and benedictions in the New Testament. Well, there's a bunch of them. A whole lot of them. So I'm not going to do that. We're going to focus on this one. Benediction means good word. You get diction, dictionary, right? That's where words are. Bena is good, or benefit, benediction. Doxology is a praise word. So what this is, is it's a praise word. It's a word of praise. It's a good word, and it's directed Paul winds this down, this mammoth of the book of Romans. He brings us back to God. Verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. Now we're going to spend the bulk of our time in this verse. There's so much here. This is not just a simple, this is this, this, and this. There's a lot to think about here. So we're, this is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time. So, if you're Paul, what do you do when you've spent who knows how long? I don't know how long it took him to write this letter, dictate this letter to who wrote it. Anybody remember? Tertius, Tertius. Remember Tertius? I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you too. That was back in the greetings passage. So he dictated to Tertius. I don't know how long it took to dictate and write these 16 chapters. But what do you do when you get to the end of something special, something that's extravagant and amazing, which covers doctrine and practical application and personal readings? What do you do at the end? If you're Paul, and if you're inspired by the Holy Spirit, you worship. Right? Paul turned his attention and his affection from the people in Rome that he had addressed, and from the people in Corinth with him. Remember, he wrote this to Corinth, and he lists this bunch of names in Rome and a list of names of people who are with him in Corinth. And he turns his attention from that and then he says, now. Now. 
It's kind of a concluding feeling word, right? It feels like I've said all that I've said before, it was good, and now. I see it as carrying with it the thought pattern of wrapping everything up into its natural conclusion. Since we've looked at the need for being right with God, since we've looked at the means for being right with God, since we've looked at the blessings of being right with God, since we've looked at sovereignty and who is right with God, and since we've had some closing mandates, then let's end where we should. Now. Now what? Now to him. To him. I think it says about saying God. But if you fast forward and get the Bibles in front of you, I have to get that for you. This latches into the beginning of verse 27. Now to him, at the end of 25, and then 27 says, to the only wise God. And everything in between is kind of a descriptor. So who we're talking about here is him, now to him. Him is the only wise God. It's God. Now to him. The only wise God. So we can pull out the clauses in the middle, verses 25 and 26, and say it this way. Now to him is the only wise God. And again, I just wanted to point that out so we can clearly see that the hymn reference, I got in at the song, that the hymn being referenced here is clearly God. And what does Paul say in verse 25 about God? Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. So, our first reason to turn our attention to God is that he is able to do what? Strengthen you, strengthen us, and he strengthens us according to Paul's gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Now, why this here? Now, now to him who is able to speak galaxies into existence, now to him who is able to speak to the dead and cause them to live again. Now to him who opens the eyes of the blind. Now to him who parted the Red Sea. A lot of things Paul could have said here. But why, why this? Now to him who is able to strengthen you. Strengthen you. Not Elijah, not Moses, not Peter, not Paul. Now to him who is able to strengthen you. I think it would be very easy to read this mammoth document alone and be both elated and deflated. We're going to see chapters 1 through 3 and seeing sin and all of its depressing reality. Look at the glorious hope of being made right with God in chapters 3 to 4. And then the soaring joy of the blessings of being right with God in chapters 5 to 8. Then wrestling with the mysteries and the majesty of God's sovereignty in chapters 9 to 11. And then wondering if anyone is competent enough to actually do the practical instructions of chapters 12 to 15. It's an up and down, emotions all around type of letter. And over these past 25 months, I've seen every look possible on your faces as I've presented this letter. I, I, I'm serious. I've seen hope, joy, frustration, anger, worship, resentment, head shaking, head nodding, eyes closed. Some of you were sleeping. I was crying. I've seen it all. And I think here at the end, we can be kind of wondering how all of this will shake out in our lives. And Paul says that God is able to strengthen you. God is able to give you what you need 
to take these truths in and what you need in order to live them out. And it is an act of worship to realize that God can strengthen me. That God can strengthen you. So you, believer, it's an act of worship to realize that. God is able to give us what we need to make us strong. God can strengthen me. That word strengthen means to make stable, to place firmly, to set fast, and to fix. So God is able to make me and you stable. God is able to set us fast. And what does he strengthen us in? What does he strengthen us according to? According to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. God strengthens us, establishes us, according to the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. When we are weak, when we are in danger of being moved away from the person and things of God, we need the gospel. And Paul calls it his gospel. That's kind of arrogant, isn't it? It's my gospel, y'all. Don't mess with my gospel, it's my gospel. Why is it his gospel? Because it was literally given to him personally by God. Galatians 1, 11 through 12. For I would have you know, brothers, Paul said to the Galatians, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it, this gospel, through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, if you just had the book of Galatians, hopefully, be setting off some red sirens going, uh-oh, what do you mean you received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ? It is not man's gospel. You, Paul, one man, one person, received this direct revelation from Jesus Christ, and that's the basis of what you preach? Anybody ever heard of Mormonism? God received a revelation in caves, wrote on golden tablets. Islam, Muhammad received direct revelation and wrote down what he said should be. We reject that outright. What one man says is going to dictate who God is and what God did for us. Cultism starts that way. But here Paul says, I didn't receive it from any man. I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. We should be, anytime you hear that, somebody says, God gave me this. Be careful. I'm not saying God didn't give them that, but if they say you need to live your life according to this revelation that God gave me, no. Mm -mm. But Paul says just that right here. So why would we base what we believe on what he said? First and foremost, we need to know that Paul was no maverick in the faith. Why should we trust Paul? First, he was an apostle of Jesus Christ, okay? He did see Jesus with his own eyes, and he was blind after he did for a little while. And Jesus spoke to him and said, go do what I tell you to do. And he gave him what he needed, and I stand praise for him. He came back and he was in the church, preaching Jesus, the very Jesus whom he had been persecuted. And in the rest of Galatians, he gives us an explanation of everything. He didn't spend a lot of time verifying that this was the truth. We go into Galatians 2, verses 1 and 2. It says, After 14 years, I went up and 
again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of the revelation, this revelation we're talking about, and set before them, the apostles, though privately before those who see them for Israel, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. So Paul says, this is my gospel. I received it. Direct revelation from Jesus Christ. I preached it, and then after a while, 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem and said, hey guys, this is what I'm preaching. Am I in line? Am I right with what you guys heard from Jesus? Because he went to the apostles. Does this line up with what Jesus told you? Does this line up with the Old Testament scriptures? They didn't call it the Old Testament, they called it the whole scriptures. Does this line up with everything? And sure enough, yeah. They said, yep, Paul, you're right. Go to verses 16 and 9 of you see. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me, God showed no partiality. Those I say who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked in Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also to lose the mind to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to them, they, give, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So Paul wasn't just out there preaching this crazy stuff and having some ecstatic vision somewhere. Jesus Christ spoke directly to him. He crafted his message from that revelation. He matched it up to the scriptures. He proclaimed it, and then he went to the apostles and said, am I right? Does this line up with everything else in the scripture? Yes. Go preach this gospel to the Gentiles. And so Paul offered his gospel. Right there. Because it was given directly to him. He received a specific revelation directly from God. He preached that revelation as the gospel we are referring to. But his normal way of operating included reasoning from the Old Testament that Jesus was the Christ, which is what he always did. He would go into the Jewish synagogue and start preaching this gospel according to the Old Testament scriptures. He even presented it to the other apostles to make sure he wasn't out of line from what they had been taught by Jesus himself. So the gospel Paul preached was truly his gospel. And what is this gospel? What is this gospel that God uses to strengthen us? That's what we're talking about back in Romans, remember? What is the clearest presentation of the gospel in the Bible? Anybody? 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11. This is the gospel that God uses to strengthen us. Now I will remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I'm the least of the apostles. I'm worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And this is still part of the gospel I can pray here. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I work harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether again it was I or they, so we preach, and so we believe. Just cloudy this morning as to what the gospel is. The gospel is that Jesus Christ died for our sins. He was buried.
buried, he was raised, and he appeared to over 500 people after his resurrection, and that he shows grace to sinners like us. And like you. And like you. And that gospel is preached and believed, and when it is preached and when it is believed, it results in God uses to strengthen us. Christ died for me. Christ shows me grace. And may that strengthen us even now. Now back to verse 25 of chapter 16 of Romans. But it's not just Paul's gospel that God uses to strengthen us. We see that it's also according to the preaching of Jesus Christ. Now again, we're able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Now I'm not sure what that means if it means the preaching that Jesus did or the preaching that is about Jesus. I think it's both. And so God strengthens us according to the gospel and according to the preaching of Jesus and the preaching about Jesus. Either way, we see clearly that who Jesus is, what he taught, and what he does is a source of strength for us. And God uses Jesus Christ being proclaimed in order to strengthen us. Are you weak? Are you feeling unsure in your faith? You need Jesus. Not the things of Jesus, not the blessings of Jesus. You need Jesus. You need the gospel, and you need Jesus. And surely the gospel is about Jesus. But in the context of this verse, the preaching of Jesus is in conjunction with the gospel and it is a necessary partner used by God to strengthen us. And we'll get that next morning application, but for now it's in this verse. The ending clause of the verse coming out of God strengthening, strengthening us according to Paul's gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, we see that the preaching is according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. And that just sounds so wonderful. Here, Paul refers to the fact that his gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ is according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. What's it mean? If you look through the New Testament, you see the word mystery used quite a few times. And in the New Testament, a mystery is something that was unknown or unclear before in Old Testament times. The people in the Old Testament saw glimpses and hints at something, but they didn't have the full picture. And this mystery was kept secret for long ages. Now, who kept it secret? Hmm? Anyone? God did. God did this. God set forth a mystery and he kept it secret and hidden for long ages. That seems kind of mean, doesn't it? And it does. Seriously. Why did he just proclaim the gospel there in the Garden of Eden? Why didn't he have Christ crucified there in the Garden of Eden? Hmm? Well, it saved a lot of misery, right? Not really. Because he didn't take away sin when he crucified Jesus. Through progressive revelation, God showed forth who he is and how he worked. Four thousand years, the unfolding story of who.
going to be and what he was going to do was being put forth. And God showed so much of himself through those 4,000 years. Through the biblical history of the Old Testament. God said, this is who I am. This is how I operate. This is what I'm doing. This is what I'm going to do. And you're going to see it with your own eyes in the whole world. So God was in the process of revealing himself. And who are you, O man, to speak back to God and say he could do something different than the way that he did? So he kept it secret. God kept it secret for long ages. It was his plan, his arrangement. And then, through the preaching of Jesus Christ and the gospel of salvation through Jesus, the picture became complete. It was in the fullness of time. And what was unknown before came into full view. And it was kept secret for long ages throughout the Old Testament narrative, but was revealed literally a manifestation, an unveiling. That's what that word revelation means. In through what transpires in the New Testament. So this revelation made the mystery fully known. And now it's known. And we have reached the benefit of 2,000 years of history being revealed. And we can be strengthened by it. Now, go to the next verse. Continue this thought. But this mystery has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of the mystery was kept secret by God, but it has now been disclosed, which means to become known or plainly recognized. And how did that happen? It became known through the prophetic writings. And these prophetic writings both hid and revealed the mystery. Peter echoes this in 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12. Concerning the salvation of prophets, he prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully. Inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in him was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and his subsequent glory. It was revealed to them, listen, that they were serving not themselves, but you. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long peace. Oh, we see holy things. We hear the gospel. We all, I know that. You know, I understand that. And, and that's good. But the angels long to look into this for long ages. And the prophets wrote down scratch writings for them. I don't know what this is all about, but I'll be discovered. And God revealed to them, you're not serving yourself, you're serving those later who will see it fulfilled and who will be strengthened by it. And we say, yeah, I understand. Okay. That was 2,000 years ago. We've got this kind of thing. Even the prophets who wrote what they from heaven were given by God, even what they wrote to them was mysterious. But when they are taken together and then enfleshed in the life of Christ and laid out in the gospel, these prophecies were made known. And get this, they were made known to who? All nations. Now what's that mean? The writings of the Old Testament were basically written by and for the Jewish nation, which, except for the period of their exile, which we'll get into when we get into Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, starting next week, except for the period of the exile, these writings 
were basically kept local to the promised land where the Jews lived, and they were for the Jewish nation. But once Jesus came and died and lived again, and was taken up into heaven, God went global with his message. He told the disciples to go where? Into all nations and make disciples, teaching and baptizing everywhere they went. The gospel is to be proclaimed through the whole earth, not subjecting Jesus as a tribal deity or a savior to only one group of people. Jesus is to be known in and for all nations. So the Jewish prophetic writings now embodied in Christ and interpreted through the gospel have been made known to all nations. Now why did that happen? According to the command of the eternal God. Why were these prophetic writings and these revelations taken to all nations? Because God commanded it to be so. According to the command of the eternal God. God commanded that this gospel be proclaimed in and for all the nations. And note that the eternal God commanded to what end? To bring about the obedience of faith. Now that's a huge term, right? Note the connection between command and obedience. Something I want you to hear plainly and clearly this morning. Make no mistake. The gospel is a command to be obeyed. Not an offer to be accepted. Oh, I think we've got to be so careful in our gospel verbiage. Will you accept Jesus as your personal Savior? No. No. But Jesus is going to go on. Please, give me a chance. No. Jesus Christ is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and he commands that men everywhere repent and believe the gospel. The gospel is a command. <coughs> Acts 17, 30, 31. Paul says this to the Athenians. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Hell will not be filled with people who refuse to accept an offer. Rather, hell will be filled with those who refuse to obey a direct command. And that's pretty important. Repent and believe the gospel is what Jesus said in Mark 1, 14-15. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, Jesus saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent! which means change your mind, turn around, and believe in the gospel. That's a command. It's not an offer out there. If you want to, you can accept this and live by this. That'd be great. We'd really appreciate your patience. It's a command. From Jesus himself, from the inspired apostle Paul himself, from God, the eternal God, So God commands that people respond with the obedience of faith. How are we made right with God? Well, we've talked about for 25 months. <coughs> we are justified by grace through faith, the obedience of faith. Faith is an act of obedience. 
God makes it possible for us to respond in faith and obey the gospel. The gospel is to be, is to be believed and it is to change our lives. It is according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience to faith. Now, verse 24. To the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. As I said earlier, this connects directly back to verse 25. And Paul says, now to him. Everything we've looked at in 25 and 26 are kind of like a sandwich in between 25 and 27 here. Everything else we've looked at is a descriptor of God and his plans. And now Paul pulls the car into the garage and he reaches to turn the key off. Now to him, to the only wise God. Paul is not here inferring that there are other gods who are not wise. He is saying God is the only God and he only is wise. God is the epitome of wisdom. We may look and question at his wisdom sometimes, but God is infinitely wise. You may argue against him or try to elevate yourself above him, but he is wise. He knows the end from the beginning and everything in between and has worked it all out in a wisdom that is far beyond ours, and he's worked it out in a way that proves that wisdom. From cells to galaxies, God has wisely orchestrated all things to work together to bring about one thing. What is that one thing? To the only wise God through glory. To the only wise God be glory forevermore. All of creation, all of the universe is ultimately culminating in the singular purpose of glorifying God. And what is glory? We were spoken a few times here about glory. John Piper gave a perfect, I think, and again, that's hard to say, but I think he gives a perfect definition of glory. He says this, the holiness of God is God's concealed glory. The glory of God is his revealed holiness. Let me read that again and I'll read the rest of what he says. The holiness of God is his concealed glory. The glory of God is his revealed holiness. So Piper says, here's my effort at a definition of glory. The glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of his manifold perfections. Let me read that again. The glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of his manifold perfections. Manifold just means multivariate, way bigger than we could ever imagine. So let me use that definition and plug it in to the end game of the universe, okay? The end game of the universe and every cell in the universe is to show the infinite beauty and greatness of God's manifold perfections. So when we say to God be glory, we are saying that we should live in such a way. We should speak in such a way. We should think in such a way. We should even feel in such a way that we show the world and the universe the infinite beauty and greatness of God's manifold perfections. Now when we say we give glory to God, we're not giving him anything that isn't his. We're simply revealing who he really is to the people and the things 
that God be glory forevermore. Christ, who was the manifestation of God's mystery, who was God in the flesh, is the way. Did you hear what I just said? Is the way that God gets glory. Now, one of the major themes of the book of Romans is that we have union with Christ. We have been baptized into Christ. We have the very life of Christ in us, and we are hidden with Christ in God in the heavenly places according to Ephesians. So, can God be glorified through us? Absolutely. Because we are in Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. What can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? The only life God be glory forever through Jesus Christ, including his body, the church. We get to fulfill here and now the very purpose of the entire universe as we ascribe to God the glory that is his alone. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name. We recognize the manifold perfections of your beauty and your holiness, and we say yes to them. That's what it means to give glory to God. And we do that through Jesus Christ. No other way. No other way. We who are in union with Christ himself give glory to God. And if we are to give glory to God, if we are to comprehend the glory of God, it will be through Jesus Christ and no other way. And God will get his glory and will be shown to be glorious as we worship him through the ages, throughout eternity, made whole by the work and ministry of Jesus Christ. God the Father revealed through the life and ministry of God the Son and made available to us by God the Spirit, one God in three persons, united to bring about the obedience of faith in his people who will see and show his glory for eternity. This is the perfect plan of God, and it will happen. So Paul ends this letter with an affirmation of that truth by saying this. Last word always. Amen. Amen means it's true. So be it. In being. It is true. So be it. So now we get to take this great doxology that ends this letter and we get to apply it. And there are an almost infinite number of possibilities that we could take and make applications from this and from the two plus years that we spent in Romans, but let's stick to applying what the author was trying to convey in these three verses. That's what's important right now. Three G's. <clears throat> We three G's of Orient are. No, I don't know. That's finished. <laughs> three, three words that start with the letter G. How's that? That's our application points this morning. And they are gospel, glory, and God. Right, right. That's the 
to start with cheese at our, our connection points this morning. Gospel, glory, and God. First is gospel. We're looking to apply what we learned this morning to our lives. Okay? And the first application point is gospel. In our passage today, we saw that God strengthens us according to the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. And we saw from 1 Corinthians 15 that the gospel is the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done. So then our application point here is that we need to strengthen ourselves and we need to strengthen each other with the gospel. Now and forever, tomorrow, yesterday, six weeks from now, we need to strengthen each other with the gospel. We need to strengthen ourselves with the gospel. So you say, how do you do that? We preach the gospel to ourselves. We preach the gospel to each other. And we preach the gospel to every creature we possibly can. There is strength that comes from preaching the gospel. So are we preaching the gospel? First to ourselves. Do you wake up in the morning? You should. I don't always do this. But do you wake up in the morning and think, Jesus Christ died for me? Man, what a thoughtless start the day with. I am right with God because of the obedience of Christ. And I have eternity in heaven to glorify God because I have been saved. You preach that truth to yourself all day, you're going to be hard to reckon with. And when we preach it to each other, when we sit back here and eat on Sunday afternoons, when we're here on Wednesday evenings when we're talking, and you grab somebody by the hand and you hug their neck, and you say, Jesus Christ died for you. Jesus Christ took away your sin. When we remember the body and the blood of Jesus, what are we doing? We're preaching the gospel. We should be people who are gospel proclaimers. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You're preaching the gospel. And that's how we strengthen ourselves. That's how we strengthen each other. Now I want to ask you a question. Do you understand the gospel? The tenets of it. The basic premise of it. Who did what? How it applies to your life. Do you really understand the gospel? Because we have an obligation and a responsibility to share this gospel with the world. So do you really know it? Is the gospel the strength of your life? I mentioned Martin Luther earlier. He says this in his commentary on the book of Galatians. He says, the law is divine and holy. Let the law have his glory, but yet no law, be it never so divine and holy, ought to teach me that I am justified and shall live through it. I grant it may teach me that I ought to love God and my neighbor, also to live in chastity, soberness, patience, etc. But yet the law ought not to show me how I should be delivered from sin, the devil, death, and hell. Here I must take counsel of the gospel. I must hearken to the gospel, which teaches me not what I ought to do, for that is the proper office of the law, but what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, hath done for me, to wit that he suffered and died to deliver me from sin and death. The gospel willeth me to perceive this and to believe it. And this is the truth of the gospel. It is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all godliness consisteth. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it unto others, and beat it into their heads continually. He closes the quote this way. It is, therefore, extremely necessary that we come to know this doctrine, the gospel, well, and 
yourself to be immersed in it. For it's to be the very air that you breathe. So that you can communicate it to yourself, to the church, and to a lost and dying world. Strengthen yourself. Strengthen each other according to the gospel. Will you preach this gospel as a command for men to obey, to bring about the obedience of faith, not as a mandy-pandy offer from a pathetic deity who just wants you to love the Lord. Know the gospel. Preach it to yourself. Preach it to each other. And preach it to the Point two is the Lord. Paul's doxology here in Romans 16, 25-27 calls for glory to be to God through Jesus Christ. And all that Paul has written, and all of his toil from Jerusalem all the way across up to Illyricum, Paul's goal was singular, and that goal was to glorify God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, the first question and answer is this. Question, what is the chief end of man? Answer, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Piper would say, glorify God by enjoying him forever, which I like better. We saw that giving glory to God is to show the infinite beauty and greatness of his manifold perfections. Now let me ask you plainly, as I ask myself plainly as well, listen, are we living with this goal at the forefront of our hearts and minds? Do you, do I, do what we do, say what we say, think what we think, and even feel what we feel in order to show to the world the infinite worth and greatness of God's manifold perfections? Is that why you get out of bed in the morning? It ought to be why you put your hand in the plow and work at your job every day. It ought to be why you wash dishes again. Fold laundry again. Get out of bed on Monday morning again. I want to show the world the manifold perfections and beauty of God. That's church. You want church? That's what you were created for. Newsflash, that's what the universe was created for. And we get to choose. We can choose to glorify God or we can choose not to. If and when we don't glorify God, we are less like God and more like those mentioned in Romans 3.23 for all that stand and fall short of what? The glory of God. So the application point here under glory is to repent. And live, not for our own good, not for our own comfort, not for our own purposes, but rather to live in order that God is seen as great and beautiful in our lives. Why do we work so hard? Because I want to show the beauty and manifold perfections of God. Now you start talking like that, people are going to think you're crazy. And you work. And you say, Your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Listen to me. Your life, your situation, your illness, your bank account, your lunch, your conversation, your clothes, your every molecule is meant to show the greatness of God. Not to us. 
us, not to us, but to your name. God gets over everything, all the time. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. But eat and drink it? Yes. And that may sound impossible. But the explicit message of the Bible is that God is to be glorified in and through his creation. And if God has ordained it, if God has commanded it, he is able to bring it to pass. And he's going to do it through Christ. And we are part of the body of Christ. He is able to bring it to pass in and through you and me as we abide in Christ. Gospel, glory, and last point, God. If I had to sum up the book of Romans with one word, it would be is not about us, but is plainly and powerfully about God. Our passage today begins with now to him and ends with to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. The gospel and the glory are about and are for God. He is the uncaused cause of everything else. In our passage today, if you look at what is according to what, you see this. Read this with me again. Looking for the according to. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed unto the prophetic writings that have been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Follow those according to you. According to my gospel, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made to all nations according to the command of the eternal God. It's all according to God. It's all because of God. It's all God. God determined the plan, and God commands that we obey him and follow that plan. The book of Romans, the entire Bible, is given for us to know who God is, how God works, and what he desires of us. The gospel is the power of God and the salvation for all who believe. God the Father sends God the Son to the world, and God the Holy Spirit convicts, draws, and instructs us so that we can believe that message and obey the command of the gospel so that God gives glory in our repentance and the resulting life. So what's the application for? Live in such a way that you know and show that God is the central figure of history and glory. Live with your affections centered on the person of God. Live with your intentions swirling around the person of God. God, what is your will? Not my will, but yours be done. Now, I'm going to tell you something. I said that I could sum up the book of Romans with one word, and that being God. I'm going to take a quick, quick get for through the book of Romans. And I'm going to tell you what the book of Romans tells us about God. You ready? Open your Bibles if you've got them. I'll have 
individual prayer. Psalms that would go on Facebook. If you didn't see that many little birdies after that, pretty impressive. Jet Tour, all out. John McCarthy, right? In chapter 1, we see that the gospel is of God. Paul thanks God. He says it is God's will that he hopes to come to them. He says in verse 17 that the righteousness of God is revealed in the Bible. He says the wrath of God, which is where he spends the next couple chapters, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. So God is a God of wrath. What is known about God is plain to these people who are who it is evident to because God has shown it to them. And they exchange the glory of God for the glory, false glory, of images resembling more men. So God gave them up to the lust of their hearts. God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And since they didn't see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. And they knew that God's righteous decree had gone forth, but they did not practice it. Chapter 2, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. We talk about the kindness and the forbearance and the patience of God in chapter 2. Verse 11 of chapter 2, God shows no partiality. God judges in verse 16. We are supposed to call, not call ourselves Jews in the law, we're supposed to boast in God, which is what the Jews did falsely. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of the Jews. The inward Jew is the one whose praise is from God, so God praises. God gave oracles. Let God be true, though every man were a liar. God is not unrighteous to inflict wrath on us. God will judge the world, has judged the world. God shows his glory through his truth. The world does not fear God, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That was to show God's righteousness. God is not the God of Jews only. He is the God of Gentiles as well. There is nothing to boast about before God. God counts righteousness apart from works of the law. God justified Abraham by faith. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He was fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. Now we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We rejoice in the glory of God. Kind of somebody from the day, doesn't it? God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We have been saved from the wrath of God. We were reconciled to God. We rejoice in God. Right? He talks about God a lot. The grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And we're not including Jesus in this, even though we could. It would take forever. We'd never get done, by the way. We move into verse chapter 6, if you're kind of following along with your eyes down in verse 17. It says, Thanks be to God. The free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse chapter 7, sorry. We are to bear fruit for God. I'm just scrolling through. I didn't type all this out. Paul says he delights in the law of God in his inner being. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Sound familiar from today, right? And now we're in chapter 8. Great Jesus, Luther. What's in chapter 8, y'all? 
God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. The mindset on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law and it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But we are not of the flesh but of the spirit if in fact the spirit of God dwells in us. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. As children and heirs, heirs of God. And then he talks about suffering. He says, creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The waiting to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The Spirit helps us in our weakness because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for those who are called who are called according to his purpose. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom God predestined, God also called. And those whom God called, God also justified. And those whom God justified, God also glorified. And if God is with us, who can be against us? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. It is Christ who is at the right hand of God. For I'm sure that in the death and the life of our angels, the rulers, the things present, the things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then we move into chapter 9. Oh, Lord, have mercy on our souls. It's not as though the will of God has failed, because God had a plan for Israel that did not include every single Israelite. For God will have mercy on whom God will have mercy. And God desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And those who are not children will be called sons of the living God. So how did Gentiles receive this? Because the Jews had a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. They were ignorant of the righteousness of God. And they didn't realize that righteousness would come through faith by the work of God through the finished work of Christ. In chapter 11, I asked him, has God rejected his people by no means? God has not rejected his people. He said, I have kept for myself. God has 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. God did that. God gave the rest who are not elect a spirit of stupor. God gave them eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And note then, verse 22, the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who are fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even if they who do not continue in their unbelief will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God may have mercy. God will have mercy on you and may have mercy on them even in spite of their disobedience. God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth. Yeah, we're going to read that again. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given gift to him that he might be repaid? For from God and through God and to God are all things.
God be glory forevermore. I test that you may discern what the will of God is. God has assigned to each a measure of faith. Chapter 13. There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. The authority is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoers. Chapter 14. Don't judge your weaker brother because God has welcomed him. He gives thanks to God. So don't struggle with him. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Whoever serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. We do not forsake a food to spoil the work of God. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. You're not judging your brother, by the way. You will take it too far. Chapter 15, God is the God of endurance and encouragement. And he grants us to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together we may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ Jesus has welcomed you for the glory of God. So that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that with the straight light of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Paul says the grace given to him was given to him by God. Power is assigned in wonders by the power of the Spirit of God. And he asked that they would pray to him, pray for him, their prayers to God on his behalf, so that by God's will I may come to you. And may the God of peace be with you all. Amen. And then he lists these folks' names that he wants to know. And he says in verse 20, the God of peace.